0: Welcome to The Root of the Matter, brought to you by UPL. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you fresh ideas and insights about agriculture in North America. I'm your host, Ken Root. It's August as we are recording this podcast. In agriculture, we can call this mid to late season, depending upon your latitude. The Field of Dreams baseball game is going to be played this month, and major league players from the Chicago Cubs and the Cincinnati Reds will walk out of the corn in Dyersville, Iowa, to have a game that we hope will be half as exciting as last year's contest between the Yankees and the White Sox. If we look at today's topic, which is weed resistance in major crops, could we do a baseball analogy here? Of How is this contest going between the farmers and the weeds? My guest is Dr. Aaron Hager, an extension weed scientist at the University of Illinois. Dr. Hager has been with us back in April. Uh, We did a podcast that really spelled out the background, I thought, and the baseline as to where we were then on resistant weeds. So if you haven't listened to that one, it is a good one. This one's going to be even better. Dr. Hager, welcome back to The Root of the Matter. Well, Ken,
1: it certainly is a pleasure to be back with you here. I'm excited to have our conversation here and looking forward to introducing a little bit of the baseball slant to this. I think we're going to have fun with this.
0: You've got 29 years with extension at the University of Illinois.
1: That is correct. Next May, I will start year 30. It's hard to believe that that much time has passed, but thinking of the old analogy that days go slow and years go fast, I think it's very appropriate here.
0: If this is a farmer's versus resistant weeds conundrum, and it was in a baseball game, who'd be ahead right now, the weeds or the growers? Well, I guess it sort of depends on if we're
1: talking major league baseball game or if we're talking more of a youth game. If we're talking a youth game, the farmer's already got 10 run ruled. If we're talking a major league game, it's the bottom of the ninth. The weeds have the bases loaded. There's no outs and they're already up 15 to nothing. So it's clearly the weeds are the ones who are in the driver's seat right now. And the way that these resistant issues continue to add complexity to our understanding of this seems to suggest they're going to keep that lead now, at least in the foreseeable future.
0: Is there any single hitter or any single pitch that the farmers can throw that would turn the momentum of this game right now? You know,
1: we, we tried that in the early innings, Ken. Uh, we had a lot of effective options, you know, for years. Glyphosate, you know, in the early innings of the game, glyphosate worked very effectively, but we kind of beat that one out of the game. We just threw his arm out. We tried other options down through time, but one thing that we're now beginning to understand, you know, is the bases are loaded here in the bottom of the ninth inning, that, you know, the, the, the single reliance on chemical options to control these weeds That's what got us into this predicament. And so really the the long-term solution may not always be looking for the next product that comes into the marketplace, but rather accepting more of the fact that we're going to have to do things in addition to herbicides to try to turn this game around in in, in the extra innings if we can.
0: I want to put a little more fear into the growers Do the weeds, in your professional opinion and that of your colleagues, have players and pitches that they have not revealed yet?
1: Oh, I'm afraid they do. Um, You know, we're we're learning more and more about some of these, what we'll call the the new resistance mechanisms, those that have been warming up in the bullpen. They got thrown into the game about two innings ago, and that's really when the lead really began to – uh, expand greatly because you know, the, the, the weeds are now using mechanisms that allow them to survive herbicides that are in some cases identical to, and in other cases, even better than the crops use for natural crop tolerance to the herbicides. And that's a, that's a little scary because unfortunately, given what we have seen in a limited number of examples within the last five to 10 years, It really makes uh, our ability to predict ahead of time, ahead of the season, ahead of the next game, if you would, what products might still be effective versus which ones may no longer be effective.
0: You're almost too good at this uh, in this analogy area, but you live this every day and uh, all of you guys, I want to point out that are the weed scientists I'm talking to and the ones that you have behind you at the university level are really advanced. I mean, we're moving to some of the cutting-edge science today to try to figure out how weeds can continue to become devastatingly resistant. And uh, every time I talk to you, you give me the indication that you can understand more about them, but you can't keep up with them.
1: Part of the challenge that we're facing is that we, once we learn, for example, what genes are responsible, For a resistance mechanism in in population, you know, in the the left field population, we'll go back to our analogy, okay? Mm -hmm. The population in the right field, there's no law that says those have to be the same genes. They could be different ones. And if you think about all possible genetic combinations that are taking place, especially in these dioecious pigweeds, the, the water himps of the Midwest, the Palmer Amaranth's of the Mid South and the southeastern United States, it really kind of makes your head spin about all possible ways or genes that may or may not be involved in these different types of resistance mechanisms. They may, you know, these, these water hemp populations may throw a left-hand pitcher at us that's throwing 120 mile-an-hour fastball, and we haven't been able to catch up with them yet. Maybe to give a generalization, you know, the Weed Science Society of America within the last year or two did a survey of which weeds are considered the most problematic of the most troublesome. And, and really, no big surprise, something like palm or amaranth and water hemp are two species that rank very near the top of that list in either major agronomic row crop of corn or soybean and in in terms of what we foresee as problematic species in the next perhaps five or 10 years, those two are probably gonna remain near the top. We just have not seen many other species, especially here in areas, many areas of the Midwest that have this, if we could, this, this propensity to continue to evolve resistance to products that now we've determined they can evolve resistance to herbicides that have never been used on that population previously.
0: Crop rotation, I guess I was going toward that, of growers mm-hmm. figuring out which crop that they can produce that will do the best against the weeds that they have, or give themselves a chance to utilize a herbicide mm-hmm. in the other crop that they can't use in their, their big bunny crop. And of course, some people don't have much option uh, when you get out of the major rainfall areas of any crops that they can go with. But I do even notice in there that, you know, some people are going to canola, versus wheat, just to try to be able to get rid of some of the weeds that they're competing with. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, you know, for example, here in areas of the Midwest, one crop that could really be beneficial would be a perennial crop. So we're talking about these problematic weeds that by, you know, no sheer coincidence, share the same life cycle as a corn plant or soybean plant, they are summer annuals. And so when you introduce a more diverse mix of crop life cycles, that's how you can really begin to disrupt the life cycle of an annual weed species. So for example, if we had a field that has a very problematic population of a, a summer annual, if we instead would now take that field and say put it into alfalfa, for example, something that will be cut two or perhaps three times each growing season, the likelihood of that summer annual being able to successfully produce the same amount of seed that it would growing with a summer annual is greatly reduced. And ultimately, as we've said many, many times before, that the challenges with these pigweed species, these amaranth species, we win these things based on what we do to preclude them from making seed at the end of the growing season. That's the one thing that regardless of the resistance mechanism, That's the one thing that we do know with certainty. If there's no seed produced, then there's no change in the frequency of the resistance genes in that population at the end of the year.
0: You know, you come from a position of being an umpire, really, of not having a favorite team and not having anything except trying to make the call as it is. But if you look at all the people in the industry, you know, I've never heard pioneers say, we think we're going to come out with a perennial corn. Even though I've heard 25, 30 years ago that it was possible because the seed is the key to the success of the major companies that are improving the yields of all of these crops that the farmers are growing. So there's some non-starters, I would think, within this whole thing that we just have to accept.
1: Oh, I, I agree completely. I, you know, I can remember as you can uh, conversations decades ago about, you know, changing the life cycle of some of our crop plant species. But, you know, that was interesting at the time, certainly, and and possibly something that could be done. But, you know, remember 25 years ago, we, we probably weren't quite at the same level in terms of the challenges, the consternations that we are now facing in terms of these resistant weeds.
0: You know, we went through, as you mentioned, the roundup era, of genetically modified crops, and that we used Roundup to the point that we, uh, so we helped the weeds increase the number of uh, crops that they can grow in. Um, I believe you told me one time that in the 90s there were three weeds that were resistant, and now about how many are there in your area of the world?
1: Well, actually, when I started here in 1993, I believe we had three species that we had confirmed resistance to in the state of Illinois. That number now is about four times that high. We're 12 to 13 now. Um, But if you look at all possible unique combinations of herbicide resistance by species, we are probably close to number one in the U.S. here in Illinois. The last time I looked, California might have still been ahead of us by just a handful. So
0: We're playing into their game, I'm sure of that, but we got to keep playing the game because we have to produce the crops. And I wonder if you want to give us a little primer of uh, where you think a farmer should go in 2023 to be able to, or even in the fall of 22, to be ready to deal with more weeds that are likely to be resistant. I think it's
1: very important for many farmers to to basically accept the fact that what we know about these resistance mechanisms, and again, this is primarily within the pigweed species that are the most challenging, once those genes, once those traits are in that population, they don't leave. So in other words, if, if we've evolved resistance, let's say, for example, to an ALS inhibitor, If we did that 15, and we haven't used an ALS product in the last 15 years, and we go into 2023 thinking, well, golly, it's been a long time. I wonder if I could kind of dust that off and throw that back into the game. We'll find out that it's about as ineffective in 2023 as it was 15 years ago. So that, of course, is step number one is to to realize that once these resistance traits are there, they do not go away, even in the absence of using that herbicide. And number two, it's almost to a point where I think it it warrants some consideration, you know, because of how many effective post-emergence herbicides that we have essentially lost to resistance in amaranthus, that maybe we try to think about, should we now put most of the focus controlling the, the, the pigweed species before it ever comes out of the ground? and then concentrate efforts on the larger seeded species, for example, velvet leaf, cocklebur, smartweed, those kinds of species, we still have many effective foliar applied options for those. But again, maybe it's time that we really start to consider what all we can do to try to keep the, the small seeded, the pigweed species from coming out of the ground, because if they do, there's a fairly good likelihood that the number of effective post options that we would have in either corn or soybean could be less than what they were last year. Again, we just don't know. We have very little predictability.
0: Aaron Hager is our guest. He's an associate professor of agronomy at the university of Illinois. He's been there for 29 years and you have seen, you've seen most of this era, quite honestly, of, as a professional and definitely as a child, when you were growing up on a farm in Illinois. And it is one that is becoming so complex, but yet, Most everybody I talk to feels like that there are solutions. They just have to go sort of backwards to do it. I mean, farmers don't really want to pre-plant, incorporate a herbicide. They'd prefer to lay that seed down as the first pass. Some of them in no-till, that's the only pass. They don't want to do much else except wait and then uh, hit the weeds that come up. Is that a reality in soybeans today, if not any crop? It's interesting. I'll I'll give you a little bit of history here,
1: Ken. We found our first glyphosate resistant water hemp in Illinois about 2006, 2005, 2006. And we had done a couple years of field research at that location. We felt like we had enough to try to really come out with some concrete uh, recommendations on how to manage this. And so we put our heads together and came up with our five step recommendation for managing. Uh, glyphosate resistant water hemp and soybean. And so in January of 2008, we started on our winter extension meetings. I would get up and start the presentation. And after about five minutes, I had absolutely no credibility left with anyone in the audience. The reason was that our first step of those five was not only do farmers need to use a residual herbicide in soybean they need to apply the rate recommended by the label. Now think back in time, that was 2008. That was by and large the time where glyphosate was still relatively effective on many acres. And a lot of farmer mindset was, well, I don't really want to use a residual herbicide because that only adds cost to my production system. And so we heard every... Some call them reasons, I almost call them excuses why they did not want to do this. So now let's fast forward here to 2022, and we would, we would estimate or guesstimate either one, probably somewhere somewhere between 60 and 70% of the soybean acres here in Illinois are treated with a soil residual herbicide. Now, that's not because of the recommendations that we made. I failed miserably to convince people to try to stay in front of this. The reason that we are now applying residuals on such a high percent of our acres is simply nature forced the change. If farmers weren't willing to make that change, they were going to realize the undisputable fact that weeds never increase soybean or corn yield. They only decrease it. And by incorporating a different strategy, a different technique, a more integrated approach, that's how they were able to try to stay in front and significantly reduce any yield loss that the weeds were gonna cause. So moving forward in the ball game, we may have to hope for a rainout for the rest of this game and pick it up later when we realize that, look, we need to change our lineup a little bit. You know, the old fellow who's been catching behind the plate for 25 years, his knees are kind of getting a little bit sore back there. And maybe we need to think about, well, Should we put this this new player, this this cultivator player behind the plate? What about weed walking soybeans there at shortstop and try to bring in a a different approach to the team? The concept is still the same. We still want to win the game. But we may have to think about playing it a little bit differently than what we're playing this game currently.
0: Your analogies continue to overwhelm my ability to ask questions that could lead any direction other than that. (laughs) Let me ask you about uh, the herbicides that people are considering using and some things that are fairly new on the market as far as a mixture of, a combination of these. And I know you've done some field test research with a product called Preview 2.1. UPL has that product. And I know you can't make endorsements, but the concept here of getting a couple of products in the jug that can easily be utilized... Are you seeing that that is uh, beneficial in uh, trying to keep the weed population from ever reaching the surface?
1: You know, years ago, we actually answered the question, is it better to rotate herbicides or combine effective herbicides to try to forestall the evolution of resistance? And hands down, what the data clearly showed is that exposing the population to more than one effective herbicide was a much better strategy than simply saying, well, this year I'm using product X, next year I'm going to switch to product Y. Now, that was all based around target site resistance. Quite frankly, now, and when we're dealing in the era of non-target site or metabolic, we really don't know yet what the most effective strategy is. At this time, we still think combining effective products is the right way to go forward. So when you take a product concept that has at least two active ingredients that are still reasonably effective, again, our thoughts are that this is going to be the strategy that we can rely on at least continue to forestall future resistance evolving. It's not going to be the complete answer. The complete answer, as we talked earlier, would be to try to ensure there's no seed at the end of the growing season. But one thing with premixes that contain Metribuzin, as, as Preview does, we have very widespread resistance to atrazine in our waterhemp populations in Illinois. Most all of that is based on a non-target site resistance mechanism. What that means for us is that a symmetrical triazine like atrazine no longer is effective, but an asymmetrical triazine like metribuzin still is. And so when we introduce metribuzin into these populations, we see very effective control. We have to get the rates correct. But we have actually looked at metribuzin, single application, single doses of metribuzin on a six-way resistant population now for about three years. This population has resistance to our soil applied PPO inhibitors. But metribuzin has still been one of the most effective products that we have seen on this population in all the years that we've actually done field research at that location.
0: What is the other herbicide in preview
1: besides metribuzin? The other is sulfentrazone, one of the soil-applied PPO inhibitors. Now, this population that we've alluded to is resistant to PPO inhibitors. But what happens is typically when we're talking about resistance to the soil applied PPO inhibitors, of which corsofentrazone is one, the way that that resistance is manifest is that the length of residual control gets less and less. So for example, if we, on a sensitive population, if we expect that product to perhaps give us five weeks of residual, on a resistant population, that may now be down to, let's say, three weeks, maybe two and a half weeks. Having that other component of that premixture that still remains effective can now extend that residual past when that PPO stops working. That's when something like the metribuzin can still remain effective and still give us a little bit longer residual control of that population.
0: Dr. Hager, we look at these two ingredients together. Two better than one.
1: Well, again, we think moving forward that having multiple uh, side of action herbicides and premixes is going to be the way that could help us, again, try to forestall the continued evolution of resistance. It's certainly not going to be the complete solution, but compared with using just a single active ingredient, we have seen repeatedly over time how weeds are ultimately able to overcome that by evolving resistance if we try to combine two, or perhaps even more than two effective herbicides together, then the probability of the weeds being able to overcome that very quickly is greatly reduced compared with, again, just a single herbicide active strategy. So uh, we we think again that products like Metribuzin are gonna become increasingly important in soybean because of the continued efficacy that we can still have, even in the face of target site based rising resistance. We need to remember, of course, with Metribuzin that we need to make sure that the application rate matches what the label recommends for that soil type and that organic matter content.
0: Not to diminish the technology that you're using in the herbicide field and understanding the resistance, but farmers are giving me the indication that they'll try about anything at any time of year to be able to truly control uh, the number of weed seed that are viable come springtime one of them they've talked about and i think you've talked about with me a bit is a weed destructor that mechanically mounts on a combine or runs in a special separate machine that catches the outflow of the combine and destroys the weeds and another is that farmers are now this fall getting themselves equipped to document where they see weeds in the field and market, and then potentially come back and treat that area again, even this fall. Is that a realistic way of controlling weed seed?
1: The harvest weed seed control concept, quite frankly, can. It, it can work, and it can work on even very, very small seeded species like the, the waterhemp's and like the palm or amaranth's that does hold future promise. And I think we will see an increased adoption of that technology. We have to make sure to to be successful with harvest weed seed control with with these mechanical cage mills that crush the seed. We have to make sure that we can get that seed into the combine. That's really going to be the key secret to that technology working. In terms of trying to map where the seed production areas are going to be, That certainly is an advisable thing to do Just keep in mind that if we map these things before we run through with a combine, we're going to enlarge the areas where that seed is going to be deposited. And it's very, very difficult to know how much of that seed is going to be deposited from that big patch, for example, right behind the combine versus how much is going to be hung up in that combine and potentially moved clear across the field or perhaps even introduced into the next field to be harvested.
0: Are you then suggesting that you take a drone and you go around and you map these areas and then you cut around them and leave them out?
1: We have seen people do that before. And if we can concentrate the weed seed in one area, I think, hands down, that's going to be a better strategy than trying to string it out, clear across the remainder of that field, and then potentially any fields that we harvest after that.
0: Is there any kind of a benefit that cover crops are bringing to Uh, weed control? Or is it two separate situations? Cover crops are helping to keep the field soil in place and the weeds are out there no matter what?
1: I think the cover crops can serve a lot of useful purposes and, and trying to control weeds is certainly one of those purposes. We have extensive research that is presented every year at scientific meetings that shows benefits of you know cover crops that can be as simple as cereal rye for example if it's seeded at the appropriate time at the appropriate rate, for example, we can actually see quite a bit of benefit. If it's a a cover crop scenario that's gonna be terminated early in the season, we're gonna see the most benefit trying to control the winter annual species relative to the summer annuals. On the other hand, if we have years where that cover crop is allowed to grow to almost maturity in the spring, then we can also begin to see quite a bit of benefits controlling or suppressing some of our summer annual weed
0: species. Final question for you, sir. Uh, how do these pre-emerge herbicides that we've been talking about help uh, potentially with any sustainability or any environmental protection that a farmer can say that they're doing along with dealing with the weeds?
1: The soil residual herbicides are simply a component of an overall weed management program. We've looked at you know, water hemp control now for well over 25 years here in Illinois, and we quite honestly have never found a single product that is going to be 100% effective 100% of the time. We have a lot of products that are very good, but we also have to remember that a lot of the challenges that water hemp, that Palmer Amaranth, bring to us are not only related to resistance. It's related to their biology. And one thing, for example, for water hemp, there's never one emergency event of water hemp. It has a very prolonged emergency event. And so we wrote our first bulletin about water hemp in 1997. And one of the key statements that we tried to emphasize in that bulletin was that water hemp, just based on its biology, nothing about resistance, is a species that is very unlikely to be controlled by any one single tactic. So the more points in the growing season that we can introduce a controlled measure, the more likely we're going to have success by the end of the year.
0: Dr. Aaron Hager, University of Illinois. Thank you very much. Maybe I should just call you Coach Hager, you know, and you are coach a lot of people through the years and uh, to a higher level. And I think that's what it's all about. I do appreciate the work that all of you do at Extension and University Research. We need you. And uh, we hope that we can keep these programs going strong and that uh, we see you in spring training next year.
1: We look forward to it, Ken. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to The Root of the
0: Matter, sponsored by UPL. New episodes will be available every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Have a great day.